Hi, I'm Sarah Manili, and this is Sustainably Speaking, the podcast aimed at raising awareness about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. These goals were adopted by the United Nations in 2015 as a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that by 2030, all people enjoy peace and prosperity. The SDGs call upon all countries to come together in a global partnership to improve health and education, tackle climate change, and much more. In 2021, Georgian College in Ontario, Canada officially joined the global movement of United Nations Sustainable Development Goals by signing the SDG Accord. This podcast is dedicated to sharing the importance of making positive change in the world. We will share inspiring stories of organizations and individuals who are taking strides toward meeting these goals. And through these stories, we hope to inspire you to take up the challenge as well. Join us in our mission to make a difference and create a better future for our planet. Hello and welcome to Sustainably Speaking. On today's episode, we have guest Carl Brown with us today. Carl, thank you for being here. Nice to be here. Great. So I just want to start right off by asking you a little bit about your professional background. I know we spoke recently and you told me all kinds of things, but I'd love to hear again just a little bit more about where you started and uh, some of the companies that that you developed as well. Well, I got started uh, out of university in the late 1980s. At the time, there was no sort of environmental programs unless you were involved in an engineering school. So there was really not the breadth of education that you can get today. Um, and when I graduated, my, my folks were living in Pickering, where mm-hmm. uh, the city of Toronto was trying to site new landfills. And as most political processes go, they look for open land. They didn't look for the right land. They didn't look for the right solutions. They were just looking for open places. And it turns out that a guy who lived in the next town was the co-inventor of the blue box. Interesting cat. And I ended up finagling a job with him and a company he had called Recycling Development Corporation. And so this was really the early, early days. I remember one of the first projects I work on was helping the city of Scarborough implement their curbside collection program. So this was before office paper recycling, the beginning of blue box programs. And so it was all new. You know, we were sort of figuring it out as we went. I worked with Jack for a few years and then Another guy who he uh, he worked with, a fella named Ray Leach, who's one of my best friends, we split off and formed another company called Waste Alternatives. And our focus was helping big companies try to solve serious waste problems. I mean, you could do a lot of little things, but there was a lot of big companies at the time who were struggling with trying to figure out what to do. A key client was uh, McDonald's Restaurants. Another one was Lily Cups. Uh, I worked with a waste hauling company called Wasteco, helping them implement early office paper programs. So it was really back in the day when nobody was doing anything. So anything you did was was meaningful. What were some of the things that you did? Like when you went into McDonald's, was it specifically to do a waste audit? And how did you go about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So one of the things, you have to be able to measure what you're doing. You can do a lot of things, but if you can't measure it, if you can't track it, um, you don't know how successful you are. So the baseline was was doing early waste audits for them. So we would take all of the waste that came out of a restaurant for a seven-day period, lock the compactors, lock it all down, bring it out on a daily basis and sort through it all and weigh it yeah. all and figure out exactly what was there. And this was eye-opening for us and for them. 
just to find out what was in their garbage and what were people throwing away? What weren't they eating? And then ultimately what options you have to do with them. One of the big things was then figuring out how to approach recycling companies and saying, hey, we know how much of this we now have. You know, what size bin do you need? How often do you pick it up? How, you know, what should the cost be? Some of those kinds of things. Um, yes. So uh, we learned a lot. Uh, uh, one of the things, it was, you know, a, little, a side thing was uh, we found that there was a lot of those little ketchup packets in the garbage. Yes. And it turns out those little ketchup packets are fairly expensive. And so when we found out how many were truly not being used, that was the beginning of when they started using those bulk dispensers, those pump things for the little ketchups instead of yes. portion packs. So it reduced waste, made a lot more sense to everyone. Um, so those were, I mean, that was a small thing, but it was a, it was one of the reasons why you do these things. For sure. And I find too that, you know, oftentimes when we talk about sustainability and putting in different recycling programs and things like that, companies look at it as though it's going to cost more money. But when you, you know, some of the things that you're talking about here, it, it actually, it, everybody wins, right? I mean, you're, you're saving, it's just from a sustainability perspective, but they're also saving money as well yeah. from a company perspective. This is true. You know, uh, you know, when you're dealing with waste diversion, especially, it was always uh, you had to justify what you did. So right. they would like to do things, but can you do it for the same or less money? Right. And yes, that's a difficult proposition over time. You can only chase those dollars down so far. The other thing that was interesting back then was that the landfill tip fee was $18 a ton. You know, okay. it's upwards of $100, $120 a ton. So as municipalities started to increase their tip fee, so went the incentive to companies to want to divert waste. An example of a government policy that was actually beneficial to helping develop meaningful programs. And I know that you also did um, some reclamation projects or companies within the grocery store or grocery store lines. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, so we did the the waste management consulting for a long time, and then we um, we worked on a project with the grocery industry on how to deal with their unsaleable products. So you know, when everybody goes to the grocery store, you see a dented can or a crushed box or a torn bag on the shelves. It's uh, it's it's actually quite a small percentage, but it's there. And uh, we did a project to help the industry figure out how to better manage their unsaleable projects. And that led us to developing a company that we called APS that we went around and provided a service to the grocery retailers and the vendors where we would pick up the damaged products, scan the barcodes, provide data and, and assistance to the two trading partners to help them deal with who owes who for the damages. And then all the products got donated to food banks or we sorted for food safety. And then all the products got sorted, donated to food banks. And so that process is still running today, 20 odd years later, diverting 25 million pounds of food a year to food banks across Canada, hundreds of food banks. It's quite, that was quite interesting. You know, that's a, a process where you really start to work with the product designers and packaging people to figure out how they can also improve the products that they're making to reduce waste and to make sure that they're more successful in getting good products to customers. You had given me an example of one of those. I believe it was on Tetra Pak. There's, there's lots of examples, but one was interesting was Tetley Tea, where they used to 
sell their tea and big corrugated or box board boxes that would get very susceptible to damage because they're not very strong. Mm-hmm. And then they figured out that uh, teacups are round, so they stopped making their tea bags square and they made them round and they put them in round cylinders, kind of like you'd see in a Pringles package, and dramatically reduced waste. But you have to work hard to get to these these solutions. They're not always just sitting there. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is going back to measurement. I was talking to you about the beginning. We provided data to people so that they could truly measure what was occurring by product, by region, by retailer, by whatever, and so that they could look hard at what some of those causes were and come up with meaningful solutions. And so measurement is a key to reaching success. I agree. And talking a lot um, right now about the sustainable development goals, which I mentioned to you briefly, which is one of our mandates here at the college. And they are there, you know, 17 goals um, that vary from social justice to food uh, equality and things like that. And I find that that measurement is a really important piece. I mean, I think that sometimes it can be overwhelming when you try to make a difference within your organization. But at the same time, um, it is important to measure that stuff because in order to be able to track what we're doing and to meet these mandates, which, you know, they're pretty lofty. You know, one thing I find interesting these days is that we live in a world where there's more and more data being generated with all of these devices and everything they do. Yet there's less and less data being shared. Like people yes. don't really get to see what the numbers are. So you see a news bite or something that'll tell you, oh, this is up by 12%. But that's all they tell you. They don't mm-hmm. actually give you a baseline. They don't give you the details. There's no nothing granular. You know, and people are smart. And people, if you provide people with more information, they can come to better conclusions and find better opportunities. I agree. And then that just helps the bigger picture, I find. The, the more information we share, the more I think we can improve across the board, right? I mean, that's the goal, really. 100%. I feel like that's the case, too, like when we're trying to implement some of these sustainability goals within our curriculum as well. I mean, I think that a lot of faculty, and this could be the same across the board in other organizations, but sometimes you're doing things that are, are meeting certain goals, but you don't even realize it, or at least they're discussing um, you know, aspects of, of sustainability and things like that that would measure, again, some of these goals that we're trying to achieve. So sometimes you don't even realize it. And that's why digging a little bit deeper is important. What you feel are the best opportunities moving forward today in terms of waste reduction or um, any type of sustainable practice? What do you think is kind of not the low hanging fruit, but something that we could kind of focus on? Yeah. So that's a good question because, you know, I, I sort of rose up through a lot of stuff where people weren't doing anything. So it was easy to get to 50 you know, or 30, but how do you, you know, getting the new stuff now is very incremental. Um, you know, you talk about sustainability, but as I like to talk these days about the circular economy, I okay. like the stuff, I like the notion of trying to solve problems more within your own communities as opposed to bigger global things. Um, one of the things I was involved with recently was organic digestion, you know, composting, but big anaerobic digestion. So it's all the green bin stuff that comes out of our municipalities is going to be composted, but it's also generating uh, renewable natural gas, um, which is then put back right into our grids here. Mm -hmm. So it's a good renewable local solution. Organic waste is a big part of the waste stream. I think the bigger problems these days are obviously climate and pollution Mm -hmm. and transit and all of those things. And so 
the more stuff that you can drive to a local level uh, where you don't have to ship stuff, you don't have to ship garbage all the way to Michigan for disposal, right? where you don't have to send it all the way to Quebec for recycling. Is it how you can find local solutions? You have to start small and you have to stay with it. We have a, an on-campus garden, so you know we collect the the scraps and things like that from our kitchens, and then it goes into our compost to feed the garden, basically. So, I mean, we're we're trying that here on a small scale from like a department standpoint. So I'll give you two quick examples of that. At Whistler, yes. at Whistler Mountain in BC, they service I don't know how many thousands of skiers a day, and they have two bags of garbage that come from the top of the hill. Really yeah, incredible. But what they do is that they have people working in in the where everyone eats and they sort right there at that point so it's not up to the customer to sort it's the staff who does the sorting for you same things now at yorkdale mall in the food court there people can't use the garbage bins you leave the tray and the staff do the sorting and you're probably reducing your costs and you're reducing your footprint and it's about convincing people to switch their budgets a little bit Mm -hmm. make that impact right Right. And to make sure things get into the right place. But yeah, keeping it as simple as possible is good. But again, as you say, labor costs. But in the end, again, these are it's a matter of looking at the bigger picture, I find. Right. We can't get in our own way worrying about the bottom line, which is important. But there's ways to measure that and to prove that these systems actually, in in fact, work better and could be more profitable. If your ton of organics to dispose of is half or a quarter of what your ton of garbage is to dispose of, well, maybe it makes sense then to have someone sorting at the front end, get more going into the good stream and less going into the other. That's the goal. Absolutely. That's great. I love that. Okay. So then what do you see, this is just a random question, as the biggest challenges facing this industry and just, you know, the waste reduction in in industry in general well i mean it it goes back to you know what we were just talking about just the number of inputs right you know in a global Mm -hmm. economy and everybody can see you order from amazon you open up a big box there's all this packaging in it and you got your little pack of razor blades i mean a lot of effort energy went in to that which you know i i'm just dumbfounded at how how big this whole model has become and why Yes. The store. Uh, you know, I'm old, so I don't know. Uh, so, but again, that goes to controlling inputs, right? And as you don't control the inputs, and that happens from a waste perspective. And, and like I say, I don't think, I mean, waste is, it's challenging, but it's not our biggest challenge. I think we're getting better at a lot of these things. We just need to get buy-in, like we were just talking about from these organizations to realize what the benefit is. And I really like the way that, you know, Back when we were in McDonald's and our clients, you know, in the early 90s, all we were saying to them was just include environmental criteria in your daily decision making process. If I'm an operations guy, whatever, I just got to do this. You know, I'm, you know, I'm focused on the company's goals and, and that's good. But the company's goals should also include some environmental criteria. So back at the time, we had to fight different people. McDonald's is an early adopter of that, but they were a target for that stuff. But you had to, other companies, you really had to fight them to, to consider these things. Well, now with, with, I think, the way things are gone sort of 40 years later, this is part of what everybody's doing. You know, sustainability um, and, and, and all of these things are making sure that senior management is paying attention to those things. 
You have to yes. pay attention and you have to allocate resources to get there. And so that's what people need to, those are the buttons you need to push. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I've got a problem here. Well, we have to allocate resources, whether it's a bit of time, whether it's a bit of money or whether it's mm-hmm. um senior leadership, just even to mentor people on how to potentially get there without drifting away from your main core, but how to get right. that done while we're still delivering our main thing. So if, if people can think about really including environmental decision-making, environmental criteria, in that daily decision, what's the impact of this? You don't have to go over the top. Just make it part of that discussion. I agree. No, and it makes a lot of sense. And I, and I do feel like, you know, I do, I've spoken with a lot of different, you know, committees and groups. And of course, lots of organizations have sustainability people that are employed in that. But I've also seen a lot where it's a volunteer groups. So, you know, the green team and, and things like that. And it's amazing because, you know, those people are very passionate about it, but oftentimes it's volunteer and there's no budget. And, you know, sometimes I, without that, how far do the projects really go? I mean, senior management is the key. They're trying to deliver profits. They're trying to deliver goals to shareholders or whatever else. They have That's their main goal. But they have to do it sustainably. That's what the world is now realizing. You have yes. to do it sustainably. And I agree with you too, but going back to something you mentioned earlier in terms of like government incentives and, and, and mandates, like, you know, it's not a matter of just, these are things you should be considering doing, but, you know, these are things you need to be doing. Right. And we're going to either incentivize you or make it mandatory. Yeah, I'm less of a mandatory person. Um, you know, I think that governments do best when they create a playing field where then where then smart people can develop systems that really work. And then the best one will work. Mm-hmm. I find governments mandate things. They, You know, if they start picking winners and losers, then, then right. it's lopsided. So. My whole thing is if they can provide the right framework through some legislation and through, you know, even financial incentives to create a good playing field for people like electronics is another big one. So everyone's got old iPhones and everyone's got old electronics and baby car seats and all of these durable goods that are sitting in their basements. Mm -hmm. Right. Thousands and thousands of Mm -hmm. tons of that stuff are sitting piled up and it's hard because there's so many complexities to these things. And so this is where, you know, governments have, you know, gone into this a little bit. Well, they'll put a tax on us like this tire tax, for example. So when you buy a tire, you have to pay whatever it is, 25 bucks to recycle your old one Mm -hmm. built into the system so that that happens. So you don't see it. It's been invisible. Works great with baby car seats. Because, you know, you have a child, okay, four years old, he's not in the car seat anymore. But that thing is useless now. Yeah, it really is. I'm not looking to tax, you know, people with babies and God knows they have enough costs as it is. But that thing has got to find a way to be, not just end up in a landfill, right? I agree. So demanufacturing is a really interesting notion. Right. And I know that the auto companies are doing it. Some of them are doing it more. So you build something with the design in place to be able to then take it apart and recycle the component parts once it's lived its useful life. So demanufacturing, it's a long curve because you have to start really early to build that into the whole design of the project. Um, yes, there are a lot of progressive companies, Procter and Gamble for one. They hire companies that take all of their electronics back. They remove batteries. They remove key parts. They try to split out the metals and recycle whatever they can. 
there, there are a lot of businesses that do that. Uh, the cosmetics industry is very good at bringing back all of their uh, unsold end of season things. Um, yeah. The electronics industry is people have tried that, but it, it, it comes so fast and furious and it's changing. It's so dynamic that it's hard to stay on top of. Yes, it would be. So, but there are examples of good good companies doing good things, but it needs to happen bigger, wider. I agree. And I hadn't actually even thought of that before. So thank you for sharing that because that's something that I hadn't even had on my radar to even think about, but I love that. And thank you so much for your time today, Carl. I really appreciate it. 